Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nahum. It's been a couple weeks that we've been uh, able to get back to a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study. I was all ready to go last <laughs> last Wednesday morning till about one or two, and um, pretty much had all my notes down for the study, but the jet lag got to me, and uh, it's always longer and harder when you're coming back from Israel to this side. But we made it through chapter one, and I want to pick up and do a little bit of review on Nahum, and um, let's begin by talking about the minor prophets, where Nahum fits into the time scenario of the kingdoms and how they're going to relate to the book of Revelation. I am especially looking forward to this Sunday as um, we'll be connecting the dots in our study with Zechariah. We're going to make it through Nahum and Habakkuk, hopefully tonight. I don't want to try to tackle Zephaniah. So let's just sort of review where we are as far as the time frame. When you look at the Minor Prophets, here we have um, the destruction of the city of Nineveh, the Assyrians. And as, especially when we're studying Daniel and the book of Revelation, I do the best I can to try to bring these two books together so you get a full picture of, of how it all ties together. So we can trace our archaeological findings all the way back to Egypt. And then from there on back, it's pretty much hit and miss, a lot of speculation. But accurately, I'm going to mention thieves tonight as, as, um, an ex- as an example. But really, the first government, world-leading empire was Egypt. And um, the Egyptians were followed by the Assyrians. And this is sort of where we are here. Um, we'll be going to Isaiah tonight, and we'll find that the Assyrians are going to be defeated by um, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, as you follow it down through history, you find the Medo-Persians being defeated by Alexander the Great and the Grecians being defeated by Rome. Rome never fell. But it leads us to the book of Revelation where we have a revived Roman Empire. Now, all this is seen in Daniel chapter 2 and 7. But he only begins with Babylon because Egypt and Assyria have already come and gone. So he starts with the Babylonians. And so as we look at the book of Nahum, uh, basically, our, if I was to give you an outline of the, of the book of Nahum, we find here the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians in the year about 612 B.C. is seen by Nahum as a future prophecy. We find that um, the revival that took place under Jonah the conversion of the Ninevites in response to Jonah's message uh, took place so about maybe a little more than 100 years later, earlier. But that revival that happened in Nineveh was short-lived because the Assyrians soon returned 
to their own ways. I would liken it to a person who, who gets saved, gets on fire for the Lord, does, does good for a period of time. And then you have the, the, the parable of the sower, and it says in time of temptation. Or because they didn't have any root, and that means they weren't have enough Bible knowledge underneath them. And when it came time for a test, they would backslide. That's Christianese for if you're new in faith. Of uh, backsliding means you were in a good place with the Lord for a while, but in time of temptation, you fall away. And the question I always get was, uh, well, was that person uh, saved? And um, I would have to say yes, because it says they received the word with joy, and they believed for a while. So the question arises, were they saved during that for a while period of time? And I have to say yes, and that throws a big wrench into the whole debate of, uh, of Calvinism and eternal security and predestination and, and the whole nine yards. But we see it here in Scripture, the largest revival that ever took place was by Jonah. Jonah did not want the job. Remember, he, he went to Tarshish, or was on his way to Tarshish, and um, he wanted out. He hated the Ninevites, and uh, the interesting thing, again, Nineveh is modern-day Mosul, which was a terrorist capital uh, for, for quite a while. ISIS is on the run now. But uh, the comparisons are, are uncanny as I think about current events. Cities like Mosul is ancient Nineveh. So as cruel as ISIS was, and I don't want to get too graphic here, but you've all seen the scenes of putting the black mask over a person's head and then an ISIS guy there with his knife and it gets very, very graphic. That's the kind of fear that people had with the Assyrians, with the Ninevites. And uh, they would take their own lives before they would allow an Assyrian to get, get their hands on them. So they were to be feared. So as we get to the book of Nahum, what has happened is Jonah has come. Everybody from the king on down has repented. And there's revival, 100% revival. But again, it is short-lived. And God is going to use uh, eventually the Assyrians to take out the 10 northern kingdoms, which we call Samaria, or the ten northern tribes. And after they did that, then what the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, uh, they came close, and I emphasize close, to capturing uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now, before we even get started in our study tonight, we're already taking rabbit trails. And I want to take you to Second Kings chapter 19, a little bit of a background we have in chapter 18, verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified city of Judah and took them. And uh, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I'll pay. And so he paid. But then there was a second invasion, and uh, Jerusalem still was not conquered. In the meantime, 
in chapter 19, um, we have the Assyrians, they have the city of Jerusalem surrounded. So we call that laying siege to a city. The idea is to cut off the water supply, first of all, and then the food supply. Then it's only a matter of time. You wait them out, and then they surrender. So as you look at chapter 19, what I'm going to put up on the screen, uh, for those of you who are just in Israel, it'll be uh, refresh your memory memory quickly. Let's put Hezekiah's tunnel up first. Um, Okay, does that guy look like he's walking in water? Yeah? Okay, so this is Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, I call it an exercise in futility because it never needed to be done. Basically, what they did is to get to, um, and we we just got done going through, not this one, because we didn't want to get everybody wet. We wanted to stay on schedule. There was another one, right, carved that's a dry tunnel. And um, let's go to that one, next one. You can. This is the one that we walked just a couple weeks ago. But it's right next to Hezekiah's tunnel, the one that Hezekiah built because he was surrounded by the Assyrians and they were wanting to hide their water supply. And it was a lot of work cutting through this, this granite. And you can still walk it today. Uh, they have a little um, marker. Uh, who was I kidding with? Dory, was it you that I was messing with? And um, I told her she had to make sure that she would say dry enough and there's a line how how much water is there. And I I had her going for a while that she thought she was going to be walking through the water. But I knew there was a tunnel that we're all going to go through on dry land. Why am I telling you all this? Because the Lord through Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. Uh, against the greatest power in the world at the time. And the city's surrounded. And so they're doing everything they can to outlast the siege, and that's the reason you have Hezekiah's tunnel. And here it is, all these years later, and people are still walking it. In 2004, at the end of um, uh, the very bottom of the city of David, they they found the Pool of Siloam. And we had a Bible study there um, right at the bottom of of, uh, the city of David. So the reason I bring this up is here's something that if they would have only listened to the word of the Lord, they wouldn't have had to do any of this. Because the word of the Lord came to um, King Hezekiah um, to him. And let's pick it up in verse 32 of chapter 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Syria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege bond against it. By the way that he came, it will be the same way that he returns, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it, my own, for my own name's sake and for my servant's David's sake. Okay, but we're going to read on that there's 185,000 men surrounding the city already. Now, I looked this up today. 
Um, it was on one of the um, archaeological discoveries of the excavation that's being done in the city of David right now. And I've already said this from the pulpit, but now I'm going to have to come back a little bit because I'm not quite as confident as I was before. In the excavation of the city of David, they have found every arrowhead that you can possibly imagine of every enemy that Israel ever had, except for one, and that's the Assyrian. And what it says in verse 32, they shall not come into this city nor shoot an arrow there. And today as we looked it through, um, I'm not sure that that can be said um, categorically, okay? But the fact that they found all these others and and, uh, one report said they didn't find any, well, it would back up this scripture right here. So let's pick it up and what happened in verse 32. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went up and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were all the corpses dead. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home to Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, and came to pass as, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nishrach, his god, that his sons, Adamamlech and um, Sharazar, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then Esherhadan, his son, reigned in his place. Now, here's what I find interesting about this. The most powerful country in the entire world was brought to its end in one night by one angel, and he died, the king of Assyria. And we have the beginning of, of, um, of uh, the, the fall here. All right, let's go back because I'm taking way too much time on the rabbit trail, but I did want to show you the, um, I did want to show you Hezekiah's tunnel. And if they would have um, been listening to the Lord. We did chapter one of, of that, but um, we find after this that the Assyrian power uh, faded. And let's just pick it up in... Um, chapter 2. He who scatters has come before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, and fortify your, your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and returned their vine branches. Beginning with verse 3, we have the... Um, um, call for the destruction of Nineveh. The shields of his mighty men are made red. Uh, the valiant men are in scarlet, and the chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and his spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the street. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like tor- torches. They run like lightning. <clears throat> he remembers his were these, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, 
and the place is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. And her maidservants shall lead her with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Uh, Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they will flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is on every side, and all their faces are drained in color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lions walk, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. And then the Lord says um, here in um, verse 3, 13, Behold, I am against you. Now this smacks of Ezekiel 38, where he talks to Gog and Magog and says, Behold, I am against thee. Boy, those are the last things you ever want to hear, huh? The Lord saying, I am against you. No, I want to say, as for me and my house, will serve the Lord. <laughs> Good place for an amen on that one. But uh, the world has gone out these days. I liken America. I think Billy Graham is still alive, isn't he? Yeah, it's 96 or something like that. And um, I'm one of those guys who got saved listening to him in my parents' bedroom in 1970. And I've seen a generation... Uh, my generation, part of the Jesus movement, totally on fire for the Lord and um, having an effect on our culture, um, having an effect on a whole generation, actually. But um, as time went on, just like we saw the revival by Jonah, um, it's been documented that this is uh, truly the only real revival that's been documented as one in our lifetime. And that's quite amazing. I mean, it's a part of a, I was part of a house, communal house movement from, uh, it went on from 68 to 78, and we had over 100,000 people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior uh, during a whole culture that was into nothing more than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And their lives were radically changed um, because of the, of the gospel. Um, it's been 40 years now, and I'm sad to say that a lot of people that I knew that were once on fire for the Lord were much like the people that Nahum is ministering to today. You see, Nahum doesn't even, in, in chapter 2 here, uh, Assyria will be conquered, but Judah will be restored. Nahum's description of the siege of Nineveh in chapter 2, 3 through 7, and the sack of Nineveh in verses 8 through 13 is one of the most vivid portrayals of battle in Scripture. Uh, the, the storming warriors and chariots could almost be seen as they enter the city through the breach in the wall. As the Ninevites flee in terror, 
The invading army plunders the treasures of the city, and Nineveh is burned and cut off. Nineveh had walls 100 feet tall, and you could drive three chariots abreast, and then they had towers that went another 100 feet taller. It was an unbelievable fortress. And yet it says it's going to be um, destroyed um, by, by a, a flood, and that's exactly what we're going to see happens here. Um, um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Let's just back up. So this is all a result. Unlike Jonah who went to Nineveh, Nahum doesn't go there. There is no sign of hope. There's no telling them to repent and everything will be fine. None of that's there. It's just now God's going to bring his judgment upon him. As we look at chapter Three, the destruction of Nineveh is deserved. And Nahum closes his brief book of judgment with God's reason for Nineveh's coming overthrow. The city is characterized by cruelty and corruptions. Just as Assyria crushed the Egyptians, so they will also be crushed. Let's pick it up now in chapter 3. Woe to you, bloody city. It is full of lies and robberies as victims never departs, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spears. There's a multitude of slain, a great multitude of corpses, countless corpses, and they stumble over the corpse corpses that are that are there as we look at um, chapter uh, this chapter and three we find that Nahum gives the cause for and justifies God's destruction of the city of Nineveh Nineveh's destruction is an example of the fact that whatever a man sows that he will also reap Galatians 6 7 this is also true of a nation you will find that in many ways God deals with individuals and nations in a very similar manner. Uh, Many critics have found in this third chapter one of the most vivid descriptions of the destruction of a city that is imaginable, and you will not find anything in any language more descriptive than this. So as we look at this last chapter of Nahum, uh, he is going to use the comparison of of the might of the Egyptians when we get to verse 8, but let's go back to verse 4 here. Again, these are the reasons. They had had revival. Now they're backslidden. They're going back to their old ways. Verse 4, because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I am going to lift your skirt over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you. I will make you vile, and I am going to make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her, and where shall I seek comfort for her? And now he uses an example, picking it up here in verse 
um, 8, we're given the question that asks the question, are you any better than uh, no Amen, uh, that was situated by the water that had waters around her, whose rampart was like the sea, whose walls were like the sea. Well, he's referring to the uh, upper capital of Egypt, which would have been Thebes. So that would be another name for no Amman. And he's asking, you guys think you're any stronger or any better than than them? Um, it was the capital of the pharaohs of the in the 18th to the 20th dynasty, and they boasted such architecture as the Greeks and the Romans admired. Uh, the Greeks called it Diospolis because the Egyptians counterpart of Jupiter was worshipped there. It was located on both banks of the River Nile. On the eastern bank was the uh, famous temples of uh, Karnak and Luxor. Uh, Homer, the first Greek poet, spoke of it having 100 gates. Its ruins covered an area of seven, some 27 miles. Ammon, the chief god of the Egyptians, was shown on Egyptian relics as a figure with a human body and a ram's head. And the judgment of this godless and idolatrous city was foretold all the way back by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 46. Also Ezekiel 30. Noamon was situated favorably among the canals on the Nile and the Nile itself as a protection. The Nile appears as a sea when it overflows its banks annually. And Nineveh can read her fate in that no Amman, for she is no better than the mighty capital of, of the Egyptians. So as you look at verse 8, we read here this city, and we don't identify it, but we do understand it as thieves. Picking it up in verse um, 9, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubin were your helpers. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Pretty graphic. I can see why they say it's so descriptive. And all her great men were bound in chains. Those also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. The last part from verses 12 on um, begin to show just how far a country can fall, uh, going from the strength of Nineveh to now what the Lord does here is he is exposing their weakness and actually how the city was finally taken. Let's pick it up in verse 12, and then we'll stop and I'll comment on verse 14. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall to the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. Um, the gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your waters for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kill. And um, commenting on verse 14 here, Let me quote McGee. His insight on this was, at the last minute in verse 14, 
The Assyrians would get busy making bricks to fortify themselves. They would heap up water, which they would carry to the top of the city wall. They would then pour a bucket of the scalding water down upon the fellow who was scaling the wall. He was surely through scaling the wall. Um, You can be sure of that. He's got that being dumped on top of him. So here, they're trying to make the best of it. But in, we'll read through 19 and I'll come and comment once more. The fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off, and it will eat you up like locusts. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. Verse 16, you have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Uh, your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your captains like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedge of, of a cold day. But when r- sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in dust. Your people are scattered out of mountains. No one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. And all who hear your news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? From revival to a cancer that is spreading, and um, the Assyrian people have sinned and sinned and sinned as if life is going to go on. But eventually, eventually, you reap what you sow. And eventually, you know, the roosters come home, so to speak. And that's exactly what's happened here. It was a way of life with them. When people want to point a finger and say that God is wrong, that God permits evil and does nothing about evil, God says to them, I do do something about it. My friend, you can look around today at the many injustices in our world. But God is doing something about them. God is just and righteous. He was a God of love even when he destroyed Nineveh and wiped it clean like a dish. It disappeared off the face of the map and off the face of the earth. And God took full responsibility for his judgment. And um, when I think of tomorrow being Thanksgiving and having a Bible study on Nahum the night before... And looking at the the complete and total destruction of a city who had truth, knew truth, walked in truth for a time. And it's something about to whom much is given, much is required. And to whom little is given, little is required. Um, it makes me think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Nebuchadnezzar rebelled against God. And he built a golden image. And You worship it or you die. So God had to get his attention. What did he do? Made him crazy for about seven years. His hair grew down to here. He grew long tangles. And he was wacko for seven whole years. And at the seven of of years just being crazy, eating grass, the Bible says he came to his senses and began to worship God. And then he... One of the greatest chapters in the Bible is Daniel chapter 4. Because Nebuchadnezzar was, was twice the guy that 
Sennacherib would ever be. Of all the kings, he says, you're, you're the head of gold, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. You're the top guy. There'll never be any dictator more powerful who has more authority. If it's Monday and he says it's Tuesday, guess what? It becomes Tuesday. And he had that authority. He says, but you're going to be overtaken by another group of people not with as much authority as you. That was the Medes and the Persians. Now, when they caught Daniel praying, uh, they sort of tricked Daniel because they wanted Daniel out because Daniel now was number two guy uh, in the Medo-Persian Empire. So they, they go to Darius and they, they trick him and they say, well, we think we should make a decree that everybody should worship you and only you. And if anybody's caught praying to any other god, that he should be thrown to the lions. He says, sounds like a good idea. Go ahead and do it. And here's my point. Even the king could not change his own decree. He says, once you've made that decree and we got it down and ready, you don't have the authority to change it. What he's saying, Dwight, Nebuchadnezzar had that authority. The Medes and the Persians, they weren't. Just as gold is superior to silver, so was the Babylonians superior to the Medo-Persians. How so? By their authority. And they were, they were weaker as such. And again, my point to all this, to whom much is given, much is required. The great thing about Nebuchadnezzar is he came to his senses. Then his grandson comes to the throne. What does he do? He knew the stories. What's going to happen tomorrow around, around uh, the Thanksgiving table? The number one thing on the news tonight was don't talk about politics. <laughs> and, um, but you talk about family memories. I mean, riding to church tonight, I was, I was uh, telling my wife, I, I said, well, you know, growing up as a kid, it was the Corgers and the Dovals for 10 years. And my most memorable uh, Thanksgiving was uh, the Corgers playing football on Thanksgiving Day against the Dovils. Now, I hope they're watching live stream tonight because if they are, then they'll remember they lost to the Dovils on that Thanksgiving Day when it was nice and warm. So um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who eventually became the king of Babylon, was held accountable. And... uh, Basically, Daniel says, as he took the cups of gold and he had an orgy, while the city gates were surrounded by the Medes and the Persians, he's having a party. And he's mocking God by taking the the golden cups out. And all of a sudden, the hand comes out from the wall and begins to write on the wall, meeny, meeny, tackle you, farson. Nobody could read it. They said, well, call Daniel in. He'll tell you what it means. And he comes in and he says, you've been weighed in a balance and you've been found wanting and your kingdom is going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happened. And just like Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians died in one night and everything changed, that night, first of all, Daniel tells him, you should have known better because your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, learned his lesson, but you did not learn from his example, and therefore to whom much is given, much is required. 
Boy, was that a rabbit trail. (laughs) And so what we have here, if I would sum up the book of Nahum, let's just boil it all down. To whom much is given, much is required. Jonah went to Nineveh. They repented. Time passes, and they go back to their own ways. They should have known better. They didn't. And as a result, no warnings. No, I'll give you a chance to think about it. None of that. God was completely just in judging them because of their sin. So that would be summing up the book of Nahum. And again, in uh, turning to the book of Habakkuk, I use this for a text for a Sunday morning, but we did not do it chapter by chapter. If you go to chapter 2, verse 4, we did a study on faith, but the just shall live by faith. And I'll come to that, but we did a, just a, a topical study, and now I want to go through and take these three chapters that we have here and go verse by verse through them. So let's do a little bit of an introduction here with um, Habakkuk. The problem, um, we have two divisions in this book of Habakkuk. Uh, The two divisions of the book are the problem of Habakkuk, uh, number one and two, and then um, the praises of Habakkuk, number three. The problems of Habakkuk, one and two, he has a dialogue with God that takes place in chapters one, one through 11, and the prophet asks God how long he will allow the wickedness of Judah to go unpunished. The people of Judah have sinned. Uh, they have become perverted. And the Lord starts giving his answer in verse 5, and he raises up um, the fact that the Babylonians are going to be his rod of judgment upon sinful Judah. Uh, The Babylonians will come against Judah swiftly, violently, and completely like a storm from the east, and God will answer the sins and the crimes of Judah. Well, this leads Habakkuk's second dialogue with God, and his problem is that he's perplexed and confused, and he asked um, how... (laughs) He asked the question, how can, the, how can God use um, the Babylonians to punish uh, Judah because they're more wicked than Judah is? And will God, whose eyes are too pure to approve evil, reward um, Habakkuk stand uh, upon, as he gives his message, his watchtower message, and God will give his reply? So chapters, as we divide the book of Habakkuk, it divides up into uh, the problems of Habakkuk, chapter 1 and 2. And then some people, um, like the Torah, doesn't even have chapter 3 in the Torah. Um, But it is in the other manuscripts, but it happens not to be in the Torah. So let's pick it up with that little bit of of review and start in with uh, the problem of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. O Lord, how long will I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, 
and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plunder and violence are before me. There is strife and contentions arise. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. So here's his complaint, verses uh, uh, one through four, where he's sort of laying out his uh, complaint uh, to the Lord. And the Lord now replies in verse um, five, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I'm going to work a work in your days which you're not going to believe, though it were told you. In other words, I'm going to do something. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, but you're not going to believe it. For indeed, I am raising up the Babylonians. Your Bible might say the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation, which marches through the, 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 the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Uh, Their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. They charge, chargers ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. He's talking about the power of the Babylonian Empire and the instrument that the Lord is going to use to bring judgment upon Israel. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up mounds of earth and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses, he commits offenses, imputing this power to his God. So that's the Lord's answer. He says, yeah, I see what's going on. The eyes of the Lord knows everything. He sees everything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. And these are his attributes. So as we look at So far in chapter 1, basically the prophet is saying, how long are you going to put up with this? And the Lord's reply is, when you see it, you're not going to believe it. I'm going to do a work, and the instrument of choice that I have is the Babylonians. And that leads us to verse 12, the second problem that Habakkuk has with what the Lord has just told him. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. And you are of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours? One more righteous than he. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and drag them in their dragnets. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them, uh, their share is sumptuous and their food plenteous. 
uh, shall they continue? Therefore empty their nests and continue to slay nations without pity. And um, actually, what he's saying at this time, it goes on, I will stand my watch and I will set myself on the rampart and what I will answer when I am reproved. So he's basically said his piece. This is Habakkuk speaking. I would not put the chapter division right there. I would make that verse 18, chapter 1, and then I would have God's second reply be chapter 2. But that's just me. Why they, why they did it like that, I'm not quite sure. But here we have um, the Lord's second reply to him, and the Lord answered and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Uh, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Now, when we get to these verses here, we're going to do a a little stop and a little review. Um, I'm going to turn to three places uh, as we get to this very important verse. And um, again, uh, what we want to do is connect the dots between even the minor prophets and then having them being pulled out in the New Testament. This is going to be quoted. Um, Let's go to Hebrews 10 and 11, and also the book of Romans. Hebrews 10 and 11. Go there first. Uh, Let's look at chapter 10 first. As the Lord here is is, um, talking to a group of people that are very set in their ways when it comes to religious tradition. If I would liken Judaism and Paul's job in trying to explain why Jesus is superior to the high priest of the Old Testament or to angels, um, he has to do it in such a way that they can identify with. So let's pick it up in verse 36 of chapter 10. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and this is where it becomes personal to us, and um, I think it's one of those scriptures that pertain to a pre-tribulational rapture. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. And we got to be careful because there are those who are saying the Lord is delaying his coming. Well, how are you saying that? Anybody who says that the Antichrist is going to come before the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the Lord is delaying his coming because he can't come until the Antichrist shows up on the scene. Are you guys following my logic on this one? Somebody give a nod one way or the other. He's tearing. We're told we're not to say the Lord is delaying his coming. No, the rapture is imminent. It could happen before we say Thanksgiving grace tomorrow. And quite frankly, I hope he does. 
Now the just shall live by faith. He's pulling this from the book of Habakkuk. But if anyone draws back, well, what happened to the whole book of Nahum? They were born again. They were walking with the Lord. Greatest revival in world history. But they drew back. My soul has no pleasure in him. So he sends Nahum. He says, sorry, there's no other way you can be saved. If you go back to your old ways, and um, I just, uh, it's uh, kind of a big big, uh, story um, of of a very well-known pastor who went back to his old ways. And it's all over the internet, and it's all over the papers and the news, and, and it breaks my heart because he was a good friend of mine at one time. And he has a very charismatic personality. A lot of people respected him. But now what's making headlines is he's back in his old ways. And all I can think of is what, what are the sheep going to think about that? And if he goes back to his old ways, why shouldn't I? Well, here we read, my soul has no pleasure in him who goes back. Uh, you know, there's a place and a rightful place for a good and healthy fear of the Lord. Good place for an amen. You know, yes, he's my best friend. Yes, he's my Lord and Savior. And yes, more importantly, he's my groom, the one I'm to be wed to. But more than that, um, the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that reverence just isn't there anymore. To read what I... Uh, just read, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's not a very sensitive seeker. This, these aren't scriptures that were meant to make you feel good. These are scriptures that make you say, Lord, keep me on a straight and narrow. Um, and Lord, keep me on the narrow path, not the broad one. So let's read it again before, because this is a direct connection between the book of Habakkuk, for the just shall live by faith, I believe Paul is a writer to the Hebrews. I believe he's the most qualified because he studied under Gamaliel and he was a Jew of the Jews in his own words. said, concerning the law, blameless. Whoa, who can say that? Uh, But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. Now, um, in chapter 11, dealing with faith, seeing that it's spoken of here, this where it's quoted. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, he spoke it into Existence. Our stove broke down. So we got to call a guy up to come over and fix it. And it was expensive. So I'm grumbling about that underneath my breath. But he's a nice guy. And um, uh, after he got the stove fixed, he's going out. And I I thought, you didn't give him a God of wonders or seeking and finding God. So I said, well, just, just, just wait just a second here now. I, I got a freebie for you. So I, I run out to the truck, and I always keep them stashed in my, you know, your place where you put your cassettes on the side there. So I have my God of Wonders on one side and Seeking and Finding God on the other side. 
And um, I brought it out to him. I said, I just want to give you this. and it's, You're going to love it. The, this the DVD on God of Wonders is a great DVD uh, on, on creation versus uh, evolution. He said, oh, my kids will love that. And then I said, and this book is actually written by a friend of mine, Dave Hunt, Seeking and Finding God. I said, it's one of the best books. that He says, well, what church do you go to anyway? <laughs> and then I had to come clean. And I said, well, I'm the I'm pastor at Calvary Chapel. And he said, my wife is going to love this. And I said, well, I think you might love it too. <laughs> I believe the whole reason our stove broke down is so that I could give this guy a God of wonders and seeking and finding God. I really do. I didn't like what it cost me out of my back pocket, but, you know, <laughs> you at least got that. You never know why the Lord does the things that he does. And um, my take, after talking with this guy, is that the kids believe in creation. I believe they're probably saved. I believe the wife is saved. But because he left himself out of the conversation and said the kids are going to love it, the, <laughs> the wife is going to love it, he's not saying he's going to love it. I believe that there's a wife and praying kids who are praying for a dad. I honestly believe that. And I went in the house, and that's what I told Judy. I said, I think this whole thing, this breaking down on stove, had nothing more to do than to give this guy um, good, solid evidence for our faith. And, um, but the thing with faith is you can't see it. And the thing of being born again, oh, my time doing it, I get enough time to talk about it, is you can't, when Nicodemus says, I don't get it. He was a nice guy, he was religious, and he was a Pharisee. That was Nicodemus. But he was bothered by Jesus because Jesus had something that these other guys didn't have. And he says, what's with you? You can do things that nobody else can do. And the Lord told him straight out, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Right over his head. Why? Because he wasn't born again yet. He says, well, what do you mean be born again? Well, you know, it's kind of like the wind blowing through the trees. You can see the evidence of it, but you can't physically see it. So what do we read here? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. But the Holy Spirit is the third part of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not it a form. It is part of the triune God that we serve, just as much as God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That's a good place for an amen. amen. So, but... The Holy Spirit we don't see. Jesus, in bodily form, invested himself into 12 people for three years. And they were with him day and night. But then he knew he was going to die and go back to heaven. And he said, it's absolutely necessary that I go. Because if I don't go, then I can't send the third part of the Trinity back. And don't you guys dare do anything until he shows up. You wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And then I'll, I'll send you out. But don't go until you've received that power. So the Holy Spirit, um, because God is omniscient, 
and um, omnipresent, we use that word. Well, what does that mean? That means the Lord is everywhere. Guard my words carefully here. I said he's everywhere, but he's not in every one. Okay? Can I make that distinction? He's everywhere. David said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I try to run away from Jonah, like Jonah did, even there your hand will find me. So God's spirit is everywhere, but he's a perfect gentleman that will not force his will upon you. Even though he's God, even though he loves you, even though he will do everything in his power to have divine appointments to point you, it's still you exercising your free will to choose when, where it says today if you hear his voice. What does that mean? Well, that's the Holy Spirit knocking at the door. And he says, when you're conscious of that wind blowing, no, you can't see it, but the evidence is there just like the wind blowing through a tree. That's what we read here, the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is all about. And when you receive it, something wonderful happens. God makes himself real to you. All of a sudden, the lights go on. And um, then we have the rest of this chapter, and we use Enoch on Sunday as an example. I, I don't have time to go there because my time's running out. We'll pick it up now in verse 5. Indeed, because he transgressed by wine, he is a proud man. Because he enlarges his desires as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers himself to all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Shall not all these take up a proverb against him and taunt riddles against him, saying, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations, and the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain. Um, it was really how they were treating each, each other that bothered the Lord the most. They were taking advantage of them. Uh, that he may set his debt on high, that he may deliver from the power of the disaster. You gave shameful counsel to your houses, cutting off many people, and sinned against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. All this reminds me, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and uh, show mercy and um, have that a part of your business dealing and your relationship dealings. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right. Um, here in the middle, again, of judgment. Judgment, 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 judgment. You have verse 14. And he takes you into the millennial kingdom. And this is a pattern that you want to take note of. So even though that God is going to bring this judgment, 
He says, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is clearly a reference to the kingdom age. He says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look at his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utterly shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts will make them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land of the city and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that is its maker should carve of it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, Uh, that the makers of its mold should trust in it to make a mute idol. Again, this was one of the things that was a highlight in Israel, was being able to see the two places where the golden calves were actually placed to worship, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Woe to him who says to wood, awake. Well, that's stupid. You could talk to wood and expect it to answer you. Uh, or talk to a stone, arise, and it will teach. Or put something on your dashboard, <laughs> some image of some saint. That's basically the same thing. What is it? It's a piece of plastic. That's all it is, and nothing more. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord in his holy temple shall shall keep silent before him. Now, in chapter 3, and I do want to finish it, we'll get to it quickly. Here is Habakkuk's prayer for God's mercy. Up to this, chapter 1 and 2 is just um, the judgment that the Lord is going to bring. He's going to use the Babylonians. But a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount uh, Paran, Selah. Now this is a song also. His glory covers the heavens and the earth will be full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hands And there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hill bowed. The waves, his ways, are everlasting. And I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the tents of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you despised with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses? Your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready, and oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of water passed by, and the deep uttered its voices and lifted its hand on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation, 
and the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked and lay bare from foundation to neck, Selah. You thrust through with your own arrows the head of his villages, and they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret, and you walked through the sea with your horses and through the heaps of great waters. Now as we end um, uh, the book of Habakkuk, um, it sort of should be summed up with this, especially with chapter 3. And as we get ready to leave it and go for Thanksgiving tomorrow, you know, the holidays can be really tough on a lot of different families. They do not look forward to it. They dread it. And they can't wait till it's over. Others, on the other hand, it's what they look forward to all year long. And in closing, my point is going to be simply this. There's a verse that says, one man esteems one day above another. And another man will esteem every day the same. Growing up as a kid, I lived for Christmas. Christmas, how many days till Christmas? And we'd mark them off. And I was esteeming that day very, very high. This year, Christmas, uh, it'll be uh, on a Monday, so we have Christmas Eve on a Sunday. And, um, but to me, and please don't take me wrong, I, I don't believe Jesus was born on December 25th. <laughs> and for to me, it's another Sunday that I get to be thankful, teach the word, and have fellowship with people. So I sort of fall in the category of every man esteeming every day the same. And every day should be to the glory of God. Good place for an amen. I call Easter and Christmas CEO Sundays. Christmas and Easter only. Because some people only go to church on Christmas and Easter. Did you get that one? CEOs, Christmas, you know. Okay, I'll leave it at that. All that to lead up to these final verses. doesn't matter what kind of day you're having. Because God's promise is he's going to work it all out for good. How are you feeling today? Not very good. Have a good day? No, I had a rotten day. Somebody else? Hey, man, I had such a great day. You wouldn't believe the day that I had today. I am on cloud nine. Neither one of them does make any difference. For we read here, as he closes it up, as he hears what the Lord has said, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at his voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with the troops. And then I ask Eric to, to especially do this song tonight. Though the fig tree may not blossom, that means you're not having a good day. Bills aren't being paid. And there's no fruit on the vines. And though the labor of oil may fail, and the fields yield no food, and though the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. I saw a dog chasing a deer through my backyard last week, and that deer was so quick and so light and so quick that no way that dog was going to catch that deer. Why do you say it? Because the freedom and the motion that I saw in that, and I thought, man, it must be great being a deer to be able to jump like that. That's what he's saying here. He's going to, on the toughest of days, Christian, you need to know, no matter how bad it is right now, that this is as bad as it's ever going to be. And um, for the, for the non-believer, this is as good as it's ever going to get right now. So we end the book of Habakkuk with two strongly worded chapters on God bringing judgment. And it confuses Habakkuk. But when all is said and done, he says, Lord, you can do all that stuff and all that can come and I can tremble. And though I don't have any food and my bills aren't being paid, guess what? I'm going to praise the Lord anyway. Because my Bible says he's working all things out together for the good to those who love him, even though we don't understand it. You know what it takes to have that kind of freedom? One word. The word is faith. And the just will live by it. Amen? Good way to end tonight's study. Went ten minutes past my time. Ah, never done that before. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. As we've gotten through these um, books, some of them on judgment, And yet, Lord, through it all, uh, we have this wonderful promise. Yet will we rejoice in you no matter what day it is. And um, we thank you that you you do cause us to be free. And we actually understand what it means that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we pray for the holiday weekends. Lord, I pray for those that are out hunting in the fields or traveling. Please keep them safe. And um, go before us the rest of this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.